We'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. I've entitled the message, A Tale of Two Women. That might sound familiar. Obviously, Dickens wrote a a novel, right? The Tale of Two Cities. But what you see as we've kind of been looking through this, we see that um, this this heavenly Jerusalem is both a city and a bride. So it's both in terms of the way that it's presented. So we see that. Revelation. Chapter 21, verses 9 through 14, hear now the word of God. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had great and high walls with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, And on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we come to these final chapters of the Revelation, we do pray, Father, that as we are given this glorious picture of the new heavenly Jerusalem, that we would recognize that in one very precious way it describes your bride, which is what you call us. So help us, Father, to appreciate what it means to be the bride of Christ. Help us, Father, to to enjoy that and yet be challenged by it, both in our thinking, in our speaking, and in our behavior. We pray that we would not walk away from a passage like this unchanged, unsanctified, but, Father, that you would do your work within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Standing in line at the grocery store, there, was a, there were a group of young men standing in front of me, probably in their late teens, early 20s, and in front of them there was a lady who looked to be, you know, roughly in her 40s, and in front of her there was a young, attractive girl dressed very provocatively. Now, I couldn't hear what these guys were saying. But the lady in front of them must have. Because when the young girl checked out and started walking out, the lady turned and looked at these young guys, there's probably about four or five of them, and she said, is that the kind of girl you guys are looking to marry? (laughs) Okay. Now, admittedly, she was... Very Karen-esque in her delivery. I don't mean to be insulting any Karens who happen to be in the room. There's a kind of a modern term. But this probably happened 20 years ago, and I still remember it 
vividly. I remember this encounter. And I'm guessing that these young men who are not probably that, obviously not that young anymore, I'm guessing they remember it as well. Now, I didn't know any of these people, and I'm not going to pretend to know their hearts. And I think there are all sorts of angles and motivations for something like this. But I'll tell you the way I translated it. The young girl probably just wanted to look nice and dressed in such a way as to get attention. She, she probably put it on, looked in the mirror, and said, that's cute. Now, I know a lot of you are going, come on, Pastor Paul. <laughs> Mostly the women in the room are going, you this clueless man. <laughs> but, you know, I, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. The level of intention that she had to present herself as a sexual object, I just can't say. I don't know. Maybe, maybe she didn't have a mom to tell her about guys, right, and the way guys think. She may have heard those guys talking about her, and she may have really loved it, or she may have hated it. She may have loved it and pretended to hate it. She may have hated it and pretended to love it. I don't know, right? But something's going on there. But the guys saw something that got their attention, and they somehow reacted. And based upon what the older lady said, what they said probably expressed some sort of desire, like, Wow, hey, you know, there was something, maybe they whistled. I don't know what they did. What the older lady was pointing out was that if they were able to win this young lady's affection, the very thing that they liked about her is not something that they would want to have continue to happen. Because if she continued to look that way, after one of those guys married her, that would begin to garner the attention of other guys standing in the grocery line. And I'm guessing that the new husband would not find that all appealing. Now we got a problem here, honey. I'm glad that you dressed that way when you were trying to win me, but no longer dressed that way. Now, as I was writing all of this, <laughs> I realized this all sounds very confusing. And if you're a bit confused right now, I think I've accomplished my task. What do men want? What do women want? Is it possible that the very thing that attracted you in the first place to your spouse has become irritating? That cute little voice now is a squeal. <laughs> wow. I didn't, I didn't realize how true that. You know, the Bible speaks often about the church as a woman or a bride. A woman is often used to describe the battle between wisdom and folly. Proverbs is all about that. 
one particular verse, Proverbs 7, 4, and 5, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin, that you may keep, that it may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. What we have in Revelation, one of the things we have, is a tale of two women. Do we have the wisdom to know the virtuous one from the other? That's what made me think about that encounter in the grocery store. Like, nobody knows what they want. Nobody knows how they want to present themselves. Everybody's really confused about what is it that I should have? What are my desires? What direction should I be going in all of this? And I think we see that here in this passage, and I'm going to compare it to something we read earlier, verses 9 through 11. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, Her light was like a precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Well, what we see here, not to get too far into this, but we see that the same angel designed for wrath, the one who had the the bowls of plagues, is also designed for glory. God has the same angel doing both. And we need to recognize that God has his divine purpose. You know, in our catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I would argue that the chief end of God is the glory of Himself. And I think that's the most wonderful thing we can have, is for God to display His glory to us, to demonstrate His power over all the earth. And He does that through that which we like, and He does that through things that we don't like. Psalm 76.10, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. So it's not as if God is going to be embarrassed about any last single thing that takes place in the course of human history. It is all designed for his glory, and when our eyes are fully open to see, we will praise him for every moment of our lives. Even the darkest moment we will praise God for. Now, it's generally conceded, if you do your research in Revelation, that that we're reading here in verse or chapter 21, is kind of a juxtaposition to what we read in Revelation chapter 17. These two things are kind of compared and contrasted, where the angel shows John, in that chapter, the judgment of the prostitute. Now, I would argue that the immediate application to the original readers of the Revelation would likely be the comparison of the city of Rome with the city of God. That's probably you know, those seven churches that got this letter, that's kind of where they would go when we begin to compare, you know, who at that time was the great harlot, Babylon and so forth. It was either Rome, the city, the Roman Empire and so forth. But we shouldn't read the Revelation as a mere history book, nor should we read it merely as some kind of prognostication of what's going to take take place at the end of time. I would argue that the same contest rages... Throughout the course of history, the battle between the world and the kingdom of God, I think it is weaved within the hearts of the nations to rage. Why do the heathen rage? We read in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? 
and they seek to cast away their cords. We want to cut off any cords between us and the glory and the wisdom of God. The glory and the wisdom of God is getting in our way as a nation, and we need to get him out so we can pursue our own direction. We are unwise if we do not see this battle within our own culture. And I would put, take it even more personal if we don't see this battle within our own hearts. I mean, what's going on in a culture is only a reflection of what's going on in individual hearts. So the battle, there might be a macro battle out there that we see on the news, but there's, always, there's a battle right here that we need to ever be aware of. Our Lord has not given us the wisdom of this book that we might be some kind of riveted audience, fascinated by what's going to happen at the end of time or something like that. But we are to be wise. We are to be warriors. We're called to be warriors. How many times do we see that in the Old Testament? Actual wars taking place, which become instructive in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul says, the weapons of our warfare. You're looking at your Christian life as a battle. We would do well to understand that both these cities, the one in chapter 17 and the one in chapter 21, one that is to the glory of God and one that is of defilement, are both presented as beautiful women. 17.4, in the beginning, the woman, now this is the prostitute he's talking about, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. So we see that this this prostitute is not presented as somebody who's ugly. I mean, so far, so good, right? This beautiful woman adorned with pearls, jewels. Until you look more closely into the cup, which is full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Make no mistake about it, you know, the, this, this whole road to hell is a very pretty-looking road. You know, I, we're, we're, we'd be silly to think that evil is going to present itself, you know, with some dark mustache, you know, snidely whiplash or whatever. Somebody over 60 over here just laughed. And against, by the way, and this is, you know, this is a little bit pet peeve I have, but when it shows up in the text, I have to address it. Over and against the idea that these two cities or these two kingdoms can peacefully and mutually coexist, forming some type of common kingdom, which is a very popular term even now in reform circles, that you've got, you know, the kingdom of God, and then you've got this common kingdom that we have with the world. Friends, that is not the way the Bible presents it. We read of the worldly kingdom's disposition toward those who would actually seek to serve the king of kings. And it reads like this in verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That's a battle. And there's always a trajectory Either the world 
will be won over by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? The world is going to be won over by you and by me exercising those gifts that God has given to us. Things like love and goodness and wisdom and, you know, this idea that we are to be a wise, charitable people who are willing to proclaim the Word of God. Either that is going to happen, we're going to have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, or the world will have a literal sword. This is the direction of history. It goes one way or the other. Many Christians, I fear, have lost the discernment to tell one woman from the other. I think we're just confused. You know, the glitter. You know, the, the, that, that, that young lady standing in the front of the line. And again, I don't know. She might have went home horrified and said, I'm not going to ever wear that again. But the point is, it's kind of like, what is going on here? Do you really want, is that who you really want to follow home? These are really two different women in chapter 17 and chapters 21. One's a bride and the other is a prostitute. Now, as I was writing this, I realized that the virtuous prostitute, quote, virtuous prostitute, has almost become a proverb in modern literature and media. You're hard-pressed to watch a movie or whatever where there's a prostitute who's not the wisest person in the room. Now, I don't want to be insensitive to the plight of women who find themselves in that condition, but this current theme of blaming, and I see it all the time, blaming abusive Christian households or some really twisted Victorian anti-sexual passion clustering era that turned everybody into prostitutes has become so repetitive that it's not even original anymore. You just assume that that person is going to be the virtuous person. But let me tell you something. It is difficult to overstate the damaging effects of prostitution. I mean, if we're going to get very literal here, the fact that we've made it legal, the fact that we've made it very public, it, 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 it will crush society. It is so evil that Scripture uses it as a metaphor for the epitome of unfaithfulness. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit is going, what can I use to demonstrate the worst possible place that a nation can go? Okay, yeah, I'll use this, prostitution. And yet we live now in a land that is kind of advocated. We've canonized it. We've, we've consecrated it. We've sanctioned it. I mean, the, the, it's, you've heard, right? Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's about prostitution. And let me, let me just tell you, as somebody who knows people who've gone to Vegas, what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. Whether it's a physical disease or the corruption of your soul, or the destruction of your marriage, it comes home with you. And yet it's, a, it's a, an ad campaign. I'll bet you everybody in this room has heard that saying. It's a huge ad campaign. Now, again, I may appear to be getting off track, but if we live in a culture that extols prostitution, as well as other sexual immoralities that take place now with the ease of the internet. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, I had mentioned this, I think, last week or the week before, that every time you see a list of the corruption, sexual immorality is on it. 
Like, it's just the thing that God is going, if that's happening, you've taken a bad direction. And it, it crushes. And we, we need to get a handle on that because it will affect you if we allow that type of sexual immorality to, 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 to blossom in the culture in which we live. And if we don't understand that, then the Bible's not going to make a lot of sense to us when it starts talking about the prostitute. Because people are going to be like, well, well, who's the good one and who's the bad one? Because in the books I read, in the movies I see, the prostitute is better than the Christian. Well, that's not the way it works in Scripture, and neither is it a reality. Now, it was so critical that John grasped the difference between the one and the other that he was carried away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. I mean, he's kind of like, look, look, i got to bring you up here, and you need to get a look at this. Hey, by the way, did you guys all get a look at the view today? Unbelievable. Like, you sent me that thing, and I went and looked in our backyard, and I'm like, wow, those mountains. It's, remember last week I was talking about how I see things 15 miles away? Well, those mountains... They're, they got to be more than 15 miles away, and they were just like as clear as a bell. And it was almost like that's what's happening here. This, you know, this, this angel's going to look at it. This needs to be very clear to you. So I'm going to bring you up to the top of this mountain, and we're going to show you this city. We discussed previously the Holy Jerusalem. It's both a city and a bride. And I think, you know, I mean, I, I know... Um, I know the Revelation is a hard book, and I know that, you know, we're in part 57, and some of you are, like, ready to move on. You know, although uh, Gino sometimes, this Gino, not my, my Gino, will be like, I appreciate, Pastor Paul, that I'm no longer afraid of Revelation. I, I appreciate that. You know, I've tried to make it ministerial and clear and, and what have you. And it's hard to read, but I think we need to be careful that we don't read the Revelation too literally, right? I mean, certain things are literal and certain things are metaphor, certain things are symbolic or semiotic, and you're looking at it going, what's the picture here? And clearly, if it's a bride and it's a city, it can't be both if we're going to be literal about it. And what I found interesting as I was doing my research in this, you know, because we're going to not get into the, the gems this morning because there'll, there'll be a place where all the gems are mentioned. Here are just a couple. But all the, all the statements, you know, about heaven that we see kind of in our culture, you know, streets of gold and pearly gates and what have you, kind of come from what we're about to study. But what I found interesting is because it is a description both of the city and of the bride, the streets of gold and the pearls, even though we might think of these things as a description of a place called heaven, it's also a description of the bride. It's a description of you. It's a description of me. And it kind of, I know when I, when I, that hit me, I'm like, well, there's, kind of a deeper, richer element to this. It's not just a great place that we're going to go when we die. Heaven is a, as has been said, a prepared place for a prepared people. 
it's not just going to be the place. It's going to be us. I mean, when Paul says we're going to have incorruptible bodies, it's hard for me to get my arms around that. You know, like, because I'm thinking, well, do I get to pick my age? Because I'm shooting for like 28. But even when I was 28, I was injured. I mean, you know, it's like, what is this, this glory that we are called in terms of glory? The author of Hebrews tells us, Christians, that we've, we've come someplace. I think it's a really interesting passage. He's like going, you have come someplace. Where does he say we have come? Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, that you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. There we have it, right? You already come to this city, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is something we've already come to, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. I love that statement. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. And there, there, that, there, that, those three verses could be an entire sermon series, but my point here is we've already come to that. Many of us have brothers and sisters in Christ who've gone to be with the Lord, right? And the author of Hebrews is, kind of, is telling us, when you go to worship, you're joining them. And then you come to Revelation 21, and you get a little bit of a different picture because what you have here is not us coming there, but them coming here. John's brought up there, and he sees the city of God descending from God. And so you get a little bit of a different angle here. It made me think of kind of Jacob's ladder. It made, it made me think of the fact that from the beginning of time, men and women have been trying to create religious systems to get to God. Every, I'll tell you, every religious system other than biblical Christianity is a system where we're trying to get to God, whether it's towers, wisdom, righteousness, good works, good deeds. It is, the, it is the lifelong millennial pursuit of humanity to somehow get there wherever there is. It's only the Christian faith where God comes to us in Christ. It's one of the child's song, I'm climbing, 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 Jacob's, Jacob's ladder, kids, is not good theology. We do not climb Jacob's ladder. Christ is Jacob's ladder, and Jacob's ladder comes to us. And so it made me think of that. And here we have a similar picture of this pure, glorified, pristine church descending to us. You have a hard time finding a good church. And uh, 
you know, people come and they're like, they'll ask me, you know, I'm looking for a church, what should I look for? And, or they'll be at a church and there's problems. And it just, churches would be great if there just were no people. But what we have to realize is this, that when we gather together, there is a perfect church that joins us. And to the extent that whatever church you're going to is preaching the blood of Christ as the mediator of the new covenant, then Christ and his church has come to you. What, if only our eyes could be open, right? Where we could see the chariots of fire, right? Our eyes could be open to see who's worshiping with us right now. How different. I don't know if anybody brought in coffee today, and if you did, <clears throat> I don't mean to get on you. But if our eyes were open to see who's worshiping with us, you'd probably put your coffee down. And again, I'm not, I didn't see anybody with coffee today. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm making a point. Right? All of a sudden, Things change when we realize what's going on here in the deepest, truest sense. And Christ comes and brings with him the glory of God. That's what we see in this passage. So it's got the glory of God. I think John might be appealing to Isaiah 60 with those words. We read, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. I almost feel like that should be a footnote in the Great Commission. This idea that we're living in a dark world, and by the grace of God, people will look for some light. They'll grope. I know that when I do memorial services, it is always my prayer, especially if it's unbelievers in the room, to help them find some light in this darkness. And it is, a, it is a horrible experience to walk in to a room of hopelessness. And then the platitudes, you know, the, the statements that are made to try to comfort themselves that you know and they know mean nothing. And you're kind of going, there, Lord, you've got to shine the light of Christ in the hearts of these people. You've got to bring your glory into this event. And you and I are called to do that. Remember, we're... We're part of that bride, we're part of that city, and we are called to be the ones who are shining that light. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus put it this way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I mean, I I hope that something that's rattling around in our hearts. Verses 12 through 14. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes 
of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And we'll get more into detail on this in the weeks to come as this all kind of is unpacked in these last two chapters. But if you recall, after the fall of man, angels guarded the entrance to Eden, right? These swords, the way to the tree of life. It was like, no, you can't, you don't, this is not yours. But now... Life has come in Christ, who's given us his life, and the angels are guarding the people of God who have the life. It's kind of the, it's turned, and we're going to see a bit of that as we look at these last two chapters. That which was lost in the garden is restored in the new heavens and the new earth. We see gates in every direction, north, east, west, and south. They speak, at least people are under the impression, and I think there's some merit to it, that this speaks of the universal call of the gospel from every direction. And there are passages that talk about that. I'm going to bring from all the earth people into my kingdom. And the 12 foundations, we see the names of the 12 apostles. So we see the 12 tribes, uh, you know, the, the saints of the Old Covenant. We see the 12 apostles of the New Covenant, 12 and 12. And this is a number we see in Revelation, right? 12, 12, 12 times 12, 144. And then that times 1,000, which is a number of great, vast, you know, indefinite vastness, 144,000. We see that all the time. So we see an understanding that John is kind of going, let me explain to you the vastness of this kingdom. North, west, east, south. Old covenant, new covenant. And then I just want to finish with this thought, and that is that the 12 apostles, they are the foundation. You have these 12 foundations. You know, it's hard to get this picture in your mind. Is it 12 on top of each other or 12 separately? And it's hard to, I'm not a contractor. But this idea, though, but we all know what a foundation is. And, And if I were to ask you, you know, in a quiz, you know, what is the foundation of the church? You might say Christ. And in a certain sense, you might be right, depending on what you meant and what the context of the question was. But what the Bible says is that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation and Christ is the cornerstone. You know, we're going through the Westminster Confession right after, during Sunday school. And some people don't like, historically, the fact that the Westminster Confession begins with, of the scriptures. Right? Chapter one is the scriptures. And chapter two is God. And people, you know, are like, well, wait a minute. Isn't God more important than the Scriptures? And yet what they realized was that apart from the Scriptures, as God's self-revelation, we inevitably will not understand God, and the things we know of God we will reject according to our own natures. So we read the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, Now therefore, 
You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. You see this language again, right? This idea of your true citizenship with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That is what's happening when we gather together. This idea that we're being built up in Christ. And how is that? The significant difference between the two women that I'm talking about in this sermon, I think, can be summed up in this passage. One of them has Christ as the cornerstone. The other does not. But this is where it gets a little confusing for people. Many people claim God. Many people claim Christ. I, I, I feel like in the last three or four or five years, I've heard more errant descriptions of the person of Christ than I've ever heard in my life. They'll say things about Jesus. They'll say, you know, Jesus never did this, and Jesus never said that, and Jesus... And I'm like, I'm thinking where are you getting your information in terms of your understanding of what Jesus did and did not do? They're they're just making it up. And, And sadly, we live in a Christian culture of people who are not educated enough biblically to know that they're being lied to. Every politician's speech, almost every speech at any award ceremony, they're thanking God left and right. Thanking Jesus left and right. But here's the big difference in terms of the image given to us in this passage, in terms of the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the question is this. Is the Jesus that you're believing in, that you're professing, that you're following, is it the Jesus Christ of the apostles and the prophets? Is it the Jesus Christ of the scriptures. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray, I pray for myself that I would not I would not depart from proclaiming the Christ of scriptures and and at whatever level, Father, I'm in error, I do pray that you would correct me and I pray, Father, that you would grant wisdom to all in this church to see error and be willing to talk to me or to the elders about it. How precious, Father, is it to hold fast to the truth of the word of God. Because, we, Father, we know that it is the means by which you glorify yourself and it is the means by which you save souls. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So we do pray, Father, that you would ever do this, that your people might be sanctified and that people who would come into this gathering would know the living Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.